Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Now, I wonder for you what the ultimate weekend might look like. Uh, whether it you know, involves a walk in the park or some sunshine and a visit to the beach, or perhaps an interesting enough sermon on Sunday morning. Um, and perhaps, of course, a few good meals uh, with loved ones, family, friends. One thing that's absolutely true that we seldom think about is that this reality of life with all of its pleasures and joys, it will one day come to an end because this life that we live is a finite life. All of those meals... Uh, those walks in the park, visits to the beach, they will one day come to an end because we don't last forever. There will be a day, one day, where you perhaps move on from this church. There will be a day where your legs can no longer carry you. There will be a day where you perhaps can no longer enjoy those, those meals that you once enjoyed because you may need to be fed through a tube. One day, you will die. I will die. And life, along with its pleasures, will end. The sting of death is that everything we enjoy now is tainted by the fact that death will steal it all away, that those joys and pleasures will come to an end. And that's what makes death tragic. Is it more painful to be born blind or to become blind later in life, having known what beauty and colour looks like? Is it more painful to have never had children or to lose them? When you're on your last legs, will the fact that you enjoyed a lot of the goodness of life, will that make it only all the more harder and make you miss it more when death comes? Death shows us that the world is finite and death shows us, teaches us, that the enjoyment of this world is finite. Now, I'm not saying that death completely ruins all of those blessings. We know we enjoy them, but I am saying that the fact that we have enjoyed so many blessings just makes death sting. That is, of course, if death does have the last laugh. Now, the passage that we're sitting in this morning is... is the second of a two-part series that brings us face-to-face with this reality of death. And it is, is part two of a mini-series uh, that I've titled Marked for Mercy. So we're looking at the Passover event in the book of Exodus. Uh, so I want to just do a quick recap uh, of last week and, and remind you of, of, of what we looked at in the text. So first, we noted that the Lord marks rebels for judgment, you'll remember. So 
Uh, we, we're in the book of Exodus and the people of God at this point of redemptive history find themselves in the nation of Egypt as slaves uh, living under Pharaoh and he has stood defiantly in opposition to the one true God. Now, every time Moses has come and told Pharaoh, let my people go, on behalf of God, he has said no. So God did what? He sent plague after plague after plague and we are at the final plague. So Pharaoh was the most powerful man in the ancient world at the time and obviously he had enjoyed much of life's pleasures uh, but he is now brought to a point where the threat of death threatens to steal that away for so many of his people. And, and what, it, what it shows us, these plagues show, show us that uh, the, the false gods of Egypt and the reality of their falsehood are exposed and we are shown that we need to put our trust. The people of God need to put their trust. Everyone needs to put their trust in the God of Israel. So in light of the rebellion of Egypt, uh, God gets to the point with them where he promises that he will send one last plague, the plague of death. And so you have this threat of the last plague looming over the land of Egypt. So we also noted, though, that the Lord made a distinction. He marked his people for mercy. He gave them the Passover event so that they could take the lamb, they could sacrifice the lamb and paint its blood above their doorposts. And the Lord, when he would come to strike the land of Egypt, would pass over them and spare them. So they were made distinct and the Lord had mercy on them. Now, the, the third thing we saw in this text is that uh, that about unleavened bread, you'll remember. So we thought a, a bit about that. And, and basically, unleavened bread is bread without yeast. So it's the bread that doesn't rise. And it shows us with lots of rich symbolism that the people of God are to obey the Lord in faith. And we see in this text this morning that theme developed further. Uh, so as God's people, we are made distinct. And so our lives are to be distinct. We are to be the people of God and live in holiness, we are to take sin seriously. And now that brings us to our text this morning. And I'll give you the, the, the outline for the sermon. Uh, there, there's three points again. Um, so if you're taking notes, this is what they are. I'll, I'll read them out again as we come to them. But first, the Lord's people obey God in faith. It's what they do. Second, the Lord's enemies will be judged. And third, the Lord's people will be saved. So let's unpack the first point. So the first point, the Lord's people obey God in faith. So this is from verse 21 to 28 in chapter 12. Uh, I work for a company uh, full-time uh, that manufactures medical products and it's a highly regulated industry. Uh, we have different types of people at the company because we design and build products. So we have uh, creative types and then we have, you know, the people who are just really good at making stuff, getting it done, following instructions. Now, both types of people are important in our company. Um, most workplaces are a bit like that. And uh, I don't know where your preferences lie. I know I've met a lot of engineers at this church. Um, but, but perhaps you're the kind of person who's creative. Uh, you, you're inventive. You like to think with a little bit of ingenuity. Or on the other hand, perhaps you're one of those people who is uh, more, more organized, get it done, uh, that kind of person, very process-oriented. Now, you creative types, 
If you had have got all creative on Passover night, it would not have gone well for you. Now you see in the text that there wasn't room for creativity. There's a, there's a time for creativity and self-expression, but Passover night was not that time. So I want you to come with me to verse 21. We've got to pick things up there and, and notice a couple of things. And we see some details here. So Moses called the elders of Israel. He pulls them into a huddle and he says, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. There's a detail there. Take a bunch of hyssop and touch it. Oh, sorry, I skipped the line. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. So notice, more detail. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. More detail. For the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians, etc., etc. But we'll pause there and look at that. So there's, 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 there's a bunch of details that come up there. You notice that? There's this well-selected lamb. There's a bunch of hyssop. They had painting instructions what they were to do with the blood. And importantly, they were to go inside and not wander off. They needed to stay there. So it wasn't the time for creative expression. You didn't just do whatever you wanted. You did things how God wanted. And as we noted last week, the point of that is to show that the people of God demonstrate their obedience and their faith by doing what he says. So what we do shows what we believe will happen. Faith and action are tied together. That's always the case in Scripture. So trust leads to action. There's a number of examples from your own life that you can see this. So if you have a job, you trust that your employer will put money in your bank account so you go to work. Children, if you're going somewhere you've never been, you trust that mum and dad know where to go, so you follow. And church members of this church, you, you trust that the, the church that you're a part of ministers the word faithfully and leads you to become a member of the church body. And, and, and out of that, that trust, you serve, you give, you minister to one another, you pray and love one another. And ultimately for us as Christians, our trust in the person and work of Christ leads us to love, to obey And to faithfully follow him. Obedience and trust always dovetail together. So in verse uh, 23, after they would go inside, it says that the Lord, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. So the Lord would require all of the Israelites to obey these detailed instructions. He would require that they would paint the blood on the doorposts. And in so doing, he would see the blood and he would pass over. He would spare them. No blood on the doorposts, 
no mercy. You had to obey God in faith. There's a great cost in not participating in this exercise. You and I live in a society where having two green ticks affords you freedom. In the Exodus, the sign was the blood of the lamb that would afford the Israelites protection. But only in the blood of Christ do we find ultimate freedom, protection, salvation, hope and peace in the midst of looming judgment. In the Passover, we see this set of orderly events that Israel was to practice. They were to take the lamb, kill the lamb, paint this lamb's blood on the door. They would go inside, eat the lamb and eat unleavened bread. And after this first Passover, it didn't just stop there. It says in the text that this was something that they would continue to practice. So this would become a rite, a ritual for them. It was this special ritual that God had prescribed for them as a statute forever. That's what verse 24 says. And funnily enough, when you have this kind of tradition in your family, in your community, like th- think about what it would be, look be like to do all of that, that, all those activity. Funnily enough, when you do all of this stuff, the kids ask why. Verse 25. When you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he had has promised, you shall keep this service. Verse 26. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. You can see it in the text there that kids are inquisitive. Right? If you've got children, you know that children love to ask why. Uh, you can see that there. So in the Passover, Israel then had obviously the salvation coming, but they then, uh, out of that, it developed this, this right, this statute that they were to keep forever that would continue to remind them of all that God had done. As Benoit mentioned before, the Passover event, the Exodus, this great event is absolutely central to the Old Testament. So, it would become a part of their national identity as the people of God, their religious identity, the people redeemed by Yahweh. And on hearing this, the people bow their heads in worship. Notice what comes in verse 28. That's what it's uh, just before verse 28, rather. that The people bowed their heads and worshipped. So out of worship to God, the next thing they do in verse 28 is, it says, then the people of Israel went and did so. So that's pointing to their obedience. It's indicating that they followed everything that God had said. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. So out of worship to God, they obey. True worship trusts God, it takes him at his word and it is the role of one generation, you can see that in in this book, it is the role of one generation to teach the next the goodness, the trustworthiness and the love of God, to teach what he has done. 
so the people of God were to pass on the Passover, if that makes sense. So through Passover, there was this opportunity to call them back to what they had received from the Lord's hand in saving them from Egypt. And, and just as an aside, to speak to the children for a moment, I want to encourage you. So if you're a child and you are here this morning, keep asking why. Especially about the Bible. That is a very good question. It's really important that you just don't take this stuff for granted. You need to understand these things. These are the most important things you can possibly learn. The gospel. And parents, it is your role to pass on the gospel to your children. The other thing that we notice is that this would be a statute forever. The Passover would go on. So what's, what's happening there? I mean, we don't celebrate the Passover, do we? Um, Christians don't celebrate the Passover today, in, in a sense, like we don't have the lamb and we don't have the hyssop. So are we obeying the Bible? Are we really obeying what God says? I've heard of Christians going to Passover demonstrations at Easter time. I don't know if you've heard that before. And where they will actually you know, show what it's like. It's quite a graphical thing to experience, I'm sure. But there's no need for that now. Why? Well, think about what we just did this morning. Taking the bread and the cup and participating in the Lord's Supper. I want you to come with me now to to Luke 22. Um, If you've got a Bible there, we had this uh, read out for us before. It says uh, in Luke 22 verse 14, When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So, you notice what Jesus says there? I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. And then, what does he then do after that? Does he take a lamb? Does he kill a lamb? Does he paint its blood on the doorposts? No, he doesn't. He breaks bread and he says to his disciples, this is my body. He passes them a cup and says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The Passover in its more fulfilled state is what we practice today. It is not the slaying of a lamb or an animal and the eating of unleavened bread, but it is the breaking of bread, symbolic of Jesus' body and drinking of the cup, symbolic of his blood, these representative elements of the new covenant. Whereas Christians, we celebrate the supper And we celebrate in that something far more grand. I hope you'll agree with me that we have. It's it's far better than even being saved from the 10th plague of death. 
We celebrate the reality that King Jesus has conquered the grave. And that in so doing, all the judgment of God that you deserved fell on him. And it passed over you because you are his covenant people. You are united to Christ in his death. And that means that his death is sufficient to atone for your sins. He died in your place for your sins, a substitutionary lamb. But the reason that this is so, such good news is because he didn't stay dead. He conquered death in his death. In the death of Christ was the death of death. So when you face the second death, you have no fear because Jesus is alive. And judgment is not something you need to be concerned about if you are in Christ. So children... As the cup is passed around, as the bread is passed around, you should ask why. What does this mean? What do you mean by this service? Borrow a phrase out of the text and ask your parents and they will tell you about the gospel. That Jesus has given himself for you if you will receive him in faith. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, If you've not received Christ, then he invites you to come. He has died for sinners. He invites you to come and receive his perfect life that he lived on the behalf of sinners who would put their trust in him. And he is risen from the grave so that you don't have to face the second death. That's wonderful. That is wonderful news. No man has ever risen from the grave. Only Christ Will you come to him? The second point of this sermon is that the Lord's enemies will be judged. So I want you to put yourself in the position of these Jews who had heard the promise of coming judgment. Can you imagine what it would have been like that night to have obeyed the instructions? You've got blood on your door. You're huddled in your house with your family. The smell of roast lamb is filling the kitchen. But at the same time, wouldn't your heart be racing? I mean, God was about to come and hit the land in judgment. Would you feel assured that you're all good? That you're okay? I mean, what is it about slapping the blood of a dead animal on your door is is supposed to save your life? What, What is it about that? Well, let's think about this. You'll remember uh, last week we met two characters. Uh, this illustration, which, we, which I borrowed from Don Carson and have expanded and adapted a little bit. So it's, it's an illustration about two Jews, and we called them Jim and John. And we left off the conversation with Jim feeling a little bit nervous about Passover, you'll remember. And John was a bit more confident. But now things are getting real. It's Passover night. And Jim and John are talking again. And they've just done what they were told to do. They've done the Passover. They've, they've, they've checked off the items. And Jim sends Bob a text and he's a bit nervous. So they have a chat. And, uh, sorry, John. Sends John a text, rather. Getting my names mixed up. And he says, you know, are you sure this is going to work? 
And so they have a conversation. And John says, yeah, come on. It's all good. Jim, don't worry. And Jim says, Bob, are you sure like, that there's absolutely nothing we have to worry about? And John responds, Jim, like I told you, Moses told you. God told you. God has told us what to do. He's just said, put the blood up there on the door and trust that it's taken care of. And Jim said, look, I know, I know. But it's still kind of scary. I mean, you know, I've only got my one son, Jim Jr. And, you know, you've got three young guys. And, I mean, you know, what if, you know, when it all happens and, it doesn't work or something like that. You know, it's just scary, all right? And Bob looks at him and he, he just says, don't worry about it. Bring it on. Huh? I trust God's promises. It's going to be okay. Now, meanwhile, one of the other characters in the story, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he didn't have blood on his door. He didn't do the Passover. He didn't care about the promises of God. They were an inconvenience to him. And so when the angel of death comes through that night, you've got Jim and and Bob and they're, they're, they're in a bit of a different state of mind. But the, the Lord comes, doesn't he? Now, which one of those two guys lost their son? Neither. Why? Because it was not dependent on the strength of their faith. It was not dependent on some amount of faith that they had. Saving faith is not like a threshold that you reach and then it's okay. No, saving faith works Because it is faith in an object. Your faith saves you because of the object of your faith. Because of Christ. Because of what he has done. And that guarantees your salvation. So it's not, how good is my faith? It's, do I have faith? And who is the object of my faith? Jesus Christ has shed his blood for you. If you are a Christian and you struggle with assurance, you're sometimes not sure, then what you need to do is you need to look to Christ. You need to look to Christ. You need to look to his blood and trust that it was shed for you. And there is all your hope and peace, as that great hymn says. So if you've uh, turned to Luke, I'd like you to turn back to to Exodus with me now. So we're going to pick up in verse 29 and 30, and we see that what happened was at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. So it's like this, you, you can think of it like this. Imagine a stone cutter tapping away at a rock. One plague, two plagues, three, 
four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. One after the other. The, the rock hasn't broken at this point. But each one of those blows has done something to the rock. The rock is hard. The rock is impenitent, much like Pharaoh's heart. And you see what happens is that the, the hardness, the brittleness of the rock does it no service. Because on the 10th blow, what happens? The Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. And the rock broke. The rock cracked because it was hard. And the angel of death passed through in judgment. And all the Israelites were spared. And the Egyptians who did not have blood on their door were not. So the next morning... People would have woken up and and death was everywhere. Judgment had hit the land of Egypt and firstborn sons were dead in every house. There was weeping and wailing in the street. Pharaoh was devastated. He had cracked. God brought the nation to breaking point. They thought they didn't have breaking point, but they found out. And so we see this desperation from the Egyptians now. The the tune has totally changed, hasn't it? He summoned Moses and Aaron, verse 31, by night and said to them, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Israel is freed, but it's ugly. It's freedom through judgment. And if we are to ever be freed from our sins of bondage, we are to be freed through judgment as well. Christ faced judgment on your behalf if you are a Christian. He faced the wrath of God so that you would not have to. Our salvation was purchased by Him facing judgment. Judgment always comes for those who are against God and salvation comes for those who are united to Christ through judgment. You know that in that land of Egypt back there, there was, there was a dead body in every house, wasn't there? If you, think, if you think about it. In the houses of Egypt, the Egyptians, it was a firstborn son. But in the Israelite houses, there was a carcass too. But it was that of a lamb. Friends, this is substitution. This is what it means to be spared from the wrath of God. And this blood-colored thread, this thread of substitutionary atonement, it weaves its way right through the Bible, through the story of the Exodus, right through the whole narrative of Scripture, right to the cross of Christ. And we can receive the death of Christ on our behalf to be cleansed from our sin and to be redeemed to God and washed in the blood of Christ. This is what it means to be marked for mercy. The third and final point is that the Lord's people will be saved. So imagine you... Again, put yourself there in the streets of Egypt the, the morning after the 10th plague. It would have been incredibly eerie, I think. It would, this, this would have been, you know, you would have been hearing people crying in the streets. 
perhaps bringing out dead bodies of loved ones. It was, it was an awful thing. The aftermath was awful. Now, then you walk through the Israelite neighborhoods and you see empty houses, blood staining the door frames, the people no longer getting ready for another day of work as slaves. They were gone. And we read in the text that the Egyptians wake up in the night to find that all the firstborn are dead. And, and, and so they're urgent. They want to get the Israelites out of there. They want nothing to do with these people. They are struck with fear. And this forces Israel out of the land. It thrusts them out of the land, as the text says later on. And Israel, it's interesting, they plunder the Egyptians. They are made wealthy as well as, free, as, well as earning their freedom. So this is a complete reversal, inversion, I guess, of everything they had ever known for 430 years. And it is indirect fulfillment, you notice, of what God had promised in Exodus 11 verse 2. So if you notice that part one and part two of this sermon kind of sound pretty similar, that's because... This text is essentially broken into two halves where the, the second very much mirrors the first. Now, I'll show you what I mean. So 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 2, it says, uh, Speak now in the hearing of the people. So this is God saying, Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And then let's go to, to chapter 12. Uh, you Follow along in your Bible there, verse 34 and 35. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. So they go out and they're rich. They're not slaves anymore. They plunder Egypt. This is a total reversal. And what is it showing us? It is showing us that God is good on his promises. He promises something. He's going to fulfill it. So God promised they would be free, didn't he? What happened? They're free. God promised that he would make a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And what did he do? That's exactly what he did. There was a distinction made. The Israelites were freed. The Egyptians were not. But it's interesting, I think. In chapter 11, you see uh, something quite fascinating that Moses has grown in favor in the sight of Israel. Okay, we expect that. But as verse 3 says in chapter 11, the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So the people of Egypt, they see what's going on, some of them. And it seems strange in a way because you would kind of expect the narrative to sort of be like, well, you've got the Israelites and they're on one team, they're on team Moses. They're on God's team. And then you've got all the Egyptians on the other team. That's, that's kind of how you would expect it to go. But I think what's interesting is that in, in chapter 12, verse 38, look who comes out of Egypt. A mixed multitude. 
also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. Now, it might be a little bit speculative to, to say that Egyptians actually came out with Israel, but it is interesting. A number of biblical scholars point to this fact and would affirm this. So what you actually see, it, and it makes sense. What do we know about God and his, his missional purposes for the world? God does not just draw distinctions along ethnic lines. No, he bases it on what he has done. And in this case, it seems as though perhaps even some of the Egyptians had heard, had seen what Moses had said, and they participated in the Passover and came out with Israel. But it could have only been possible if they did indeed do that because they needed the blood on the door. And perhaps as well, like just to further um, make this point, we see that there are these provisions made for sojourners and foreigners in the next section of Exodus. So perhaps uh, you can go and do a bit of homework there if you're interested and discuss this later if you want. Um, but what we see is that God marks a people for mercy and it shows us, points us to the fact that God is redeeming a people for himself. And they will be from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. So, in a sense, you could say redemption is universal. I don't mean universalism, that you know, everyone gets saved. We see that in the text. Not all of Egypt gets saved. So that universalism is not true. We, we, do not, we deny that. That's, that's unbiblical. But, it, but redemption is universal in the fact that the people who are in scope are from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. That is what God intends to do in the, in the, um, in the narrative of redemption that weaves its way through the whole biblical storyline. Now, we deny universalism. It's not, it's not biblical. We don't want to hold to that. This church does not believe in that. But... I wonder if at times we can be tempted to become functional universalists and act as though, well, it'll be okay. Well, you know, God will do it. A functional universalist is someone who keeps the gospel to themselves rather than sharing the gospel. Functional universalists are not particularly interested in missions to the ends of the earth. They don't tell people about Christ. They keep it to themselves. But our churches do not exist for ourselves. It's easy to be comfortable, isn't it? And just kind of hold back at that conversation at work or wherever you find yourself. But our church, this church exists for the glory of God. And God is spreading his glory across the nations now, and it happens through the preaching of the gospel, through the planting of churches, through the sending and supporting of missionaries, through prayer. We prayed for Tonga this morning. We want to be a church that is interested and invested in the mission of God, both here in, in Dever Hills and all over the world. And we need to pray that this Holy Spirit would penetrate the rock-hard hearts of men and women who are standing in defiance to God. And the only way that that will happen is through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ to sinners. 
So if you are not one of his people and you find yourself here this morning, then Jesus calls you to trust in him. He is a friend of sinners, the Bible says. If you are in bondage and slavery to sin, and you know if you are, then the only way to be redeemed is through Christ, that his blood would cover all of your sins and so that the Father's wrath would pass over you. Now for all those who were delivered by the Lamb. The Passover became really special. It was this special day in which they would remember that night where they were delivered from this awful 430 years of slavery. And on this Lord's Day, isn't it wonderful that we can come to the Lord's table and celebrate something even better? May we all remember and proclaim that there was a sacrifice made for sin. So to wrap up, one day the goodness of life will fade and the sting of death will feel real. The friends you love and have now, they may be gone. The things that you have accumulated and acquired over a lifetime will be put up for sale or thrown in the bin. And one day those meals that you enjoyed will come to an end. But there is a meal, there is a feast that death cannot snatch away. And it has its origins in the Passover. It has its roots in This event that took place in Egypt thousands of years ago. And it continues on in a sense. In the Lord's Supper. But I'm not just talking about the Lord's Supper. Something greater awaits. By God's power and grace, the church will continue on through the ages, celebrating the Lord's Supper. Yes, till he calls us home. But when he calls us home, he is going to call us to an even greater banquet. One where the wine will flow, where rich, delicious food will keep on coming. You'll find this banquet described by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 25. He says this, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. That's a promise. That is a promise. And what do we know about God is that he, he fulfills his promises. The marriage supper of the Lamb, it's described in Revelation. God will feast with us. We will dwell with Christ forever, beloved. And he will wipe away every tear. Death shall be no more. We will be with him in glory. And we will feast with him 
and the feast will be so good because we will be in his presence. We will see his face and we will be with him and joy will flood our hearts forever. Let's pray. And Father, I just want to pray for this church that they would be filled with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding and that they would work, uh, walk in a, a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Lord, I pray that this church would be strengthened with all power according to your glorious might that they would be strengthened for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to you, our Father, who has qualified each of us, each member of this church, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Father, we praise you that you have delivered us from the domain of darkness. You've delivered us from spiritual bondage. You have transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. We pray in his name. Amen.